0: Well, continuing with uh, the Gospel of Mark here up to Chapter 3 now, we said in the first uh, two talks on Mark 1 and Mark 2 that here we have Jesus presented, as it were, by a cameraman who is zooming right close up to Jesus. And the intention of these Gospel records is that the Jesus who walked around the lanes of Galilee who was in homes and houses throughout uh, first century palestine as mark uh, continually reports his uh, his work in homes and houses and you've got that in this chapter that this same jesus is the same yesterday today and forever and that in essence we are behind him, walking with him in our lives, in our contexts and there perhaps Mark was writing maybe to his initial audience uh, was a group of of house churches Uh, and we also I suppose have a lot of our fellowship with each other in homes, in in houses many of you uh, are members of, of home groups, of house groups And the point is that this same Lord Jesus who taught and people had encounters with him in homes, in houses, is the same Jesus today. And so we can see in in all the things that are recorded about his life and his encounters with people some similarity with our own experience just quite simply there he does this miracle in verses one to five he heals the man with the withered hand and verse six and the pharisees go out and immediately take counsel with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him no good deed goes unpunished have you experienced that I'm sure you have. We all experience that. It seems sometimes that that is what life is about. About suffering because of doing good. And those that are against us, even uniting, Pharisees and Herodians uniting against Jesus, people can even uh, sink their differences for a moment and unite against us because we do good. And of course, you remember how Pilate and Herod were made friends together at the final death of, of jesus so then there you are with your experience and your sadness of having been beat up for doing good and that can that beating up is very really often not just a, a temporary uh, situation but it can go on all your life Um, it can destroy your family it it can destroy all sorts of things and make life very very difficult straight away there you are coming to this, this chapter with those experiences and with those feelings and there you are in essence the Lord Jesus went through exactly that and that's why inspiration has very carefully chosen the incidents that have been recorded in the four gospels so that somehow right across the whole range of human experience we will find that in essence he went through this and so man is not alone on this world and we all have that feeling that nobody knows what I went through or what I'm going through and actually of course the Lord does and this is I suppose one reason for the crucifixion which we're here to remember and it's also not just a reason for the crucifixion it's the reason for the gospel records being as they are having been as it were edited as they are so that the the years of the life of Jesus are sort of uh, condensed into these few incidents relatively speaking from his life which are recorded here so then in verses 1-5 to as I said you've got the the man with the withered hand and he says to the man stand forth so verse 3 so he's there all very public you see it's like playing what Harry Widdick used to call Bible television you can just imagine it happening it's all written in that way it doesn't just say, oh yeah, Jesus met a guy who had a withered hand in a synagogue and he healed him. No, you can actually imagine it happening. He says to the man who had the withered hand, stand forth. And there they are, the focus is upon the man with a withered hand and upon Jesus and upon the, uh, the, the Jews looking at him critically. You see verse 5, when Jesus had looked round about on them with anger being grieved for the hardness of their hearts you know how pregnant is, is that, is that uh, half sentence that he looked round about on them with anger but that anger was mixed with a grief for how hard hearted they were so you've really got a picture there an exquisite picture in, in half a sentence of the body language of Jesus that so this was not simply the anger of irritation or the anger with the difficult people about an anger mixed with grief for the hardness of their hearts in other words he, he saw to their their mind that, that was within and it was for their mind that he grieved for their attitude and it's been suggested that the whole style of Mark this uh, sort of thing where you can really imagine his body language was in fact because The Gospel of Mark was intended to be read out and acted out and in the first century this was quite common that people would stand on a street corner and recite some play or some uh, monologue about an individual and act out the story whilst they were uh, reciting it. And it's been suggested that Mark's Gospel is really ideally uh, designed for that. And so this would have been one way in which the Gospel was spread in the first century. People standing in market street corners, and reading out, or reciting, let's say, reciting something like the Gospel of Mark. And if you ever get a chance to see Steve Gretton do this, he's done it at CareLinks conferences, he's done it at other, other conferences, and uh, it's been videoed and... It's on uh, YouTube. Uh, he, he's done this with uh, with parts of the Gospels, particularly the Gospel of John, acting it out whilst he recites it from, uh, from memory. And it's, it's really very powerful. And I think that leads on to a window, shall I say, onto the question of what is the Gospel. The Gospel is what you've got here in the Gospels. The Gospel, according to Mark, was the Gospel which Mark preached. And it's, uh, if you like, a transcript of of his preaching of the gospel this is the good news not a set of theology that's got to be intricately worked out but the gospel is the good news about the person of Jesus and yes of course his teaching about the kingdom which was part of not only part of his spoken message but part of his character and his personality as is revealed to us in the gospels Now he says in verse 4 something that I I find very profound and it's so profound that really we could just read out verse 4 and instead of me talking as I normally do for 25 minutes or half an hour, um, just I could read that and and sit down and say well there you are, you've got 20 minutes to think about that in silence There's the withered man in front of uh, withered handed man in front of Jesus and he can heal him Jesus knows he has the power to do that and he knows he's going to get in lots of trouble if he does because it's the Sabbath and they're all watching him whether he's going to do this on the Sabbath that they might accuse him so he says is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath days or to do evil, to save life or to kill if he had not healed the man when he could have done this would have been to do evil this would have even been to kill it could be that if the man, uh, I infer from that, that if the man had not been cured at that point, he would have died. The, the withered hand was therefore uh, a sign of some, some deeper uh, disease which he had, which was presumably terminal. So then, if Jesus had not done that, he would have done evil. If he had simply thought, oh, yeah, I could do that, but I won't, because I don't want to get beat up for it, it would have been a doing of evil. <clears throat> it would have even been a killing. Now this is where it all gets so profound that sins of omission are read by God as if they are sins of commission. Now I don't think <clears throat> I, I, I don't think that... You and I generally are the types who simply harden ourselves to sin And say I shall do this Even though I know it is wrong And I'm going to just forget God and forget the Bible For one minute, ten minutes, one hour, one day, one week, one month I'm just going to go out there and do exactly what I want And break God's commands I don't think that is the way that we sin I mean people like you and me but the way that you and I sin. Is by sins of omission. To see what you could do. And pass it up. And to be silent. There's a number of passages in Proverbs. Which talk exactly about this. About not saying that you did not see. The need of your brother. It's the walking on by. Of the, of, of the fallacy and the, uh, the publican. Sorry, the, uh, the publican and the, the sorry the uh, the Levite um, <clears throat> and the Pharisee in the in the parable of the Good Samaritan that the passing on by I didn't notice I close the eyes of my understanding as Paul would put it and I do nothing and it is that doing of nothing which is in fact Jesus uh, interprets it here as doing evil and killing now this is where it all gets so challenging and so profound and I want to share with you a theory that I can't really prove um, but I will share it in this connection though. if you read um, From Milk to Meat or Beyond Bible Basics there's a section in there and I forget it's called different things in different, uh, different editions of the book but something to the effect of questions from my margin or things which I ponder something like that anyway Uh, What I'm saying is that it's not um, I'm not trying to tell you that this is the case But I leave it for you to chew on And it's this What was the first sin? We tend to say well it was when uh, Eve sunk her teeth into that fruit Bang that was it And then she gave it to Adam and he did the same Although that runs into a bit of a problem uh, when Paul talks about Adam and not Eve as the first sinner now I know there's, there's ways to uh, account for that but um, I still think it's a slightly unresolved problem my suggestion is this that the first sin was not so primitive that you know you just, uh, they just took a fruit they weren't supposed to and, and ate it they were given a command which was to go forth and multiply and to replenish the earth and they didn't do that they didn't breed they did not perform what we now would know as the sexual act because it's only after they've fallen, after they've sinned <coughs> that they are uh, that, that we, we read that they, they slept with each other and Eve got pregnant and had a, had a son so then they omitted they omitted to go forth and multiply and I think by a strange trick of the tale... Not uh, divine, I wouldn't call it sarcasm... But um, just it, it has the hallmark of the divine... That the one thing that they couldn't be bothered to to, to get round to do... Every human being since then... Has been going through this, this life with their tongue hanging out for nothing else... But to perform the, the sexual act... And of course part of the fall was that the sexual act was freighted with all manner of uh, sinful possibilities and all manner of, of, of guilt uh, and uh, that sense of mystery and that sense of attraction which there is to the sexual act. That, As I say, it, it's what we are so structured as human beings to have our tongue hanging out to, to want to do. And yet, it was the very thing that initially, <clears throat> initially, when that act was not fruited with all that stuff, they didn't do. And I wonder if the eating of the fruit was uh, a result of them not having gone God's way. Maybe if they had gone forth and multiplied, they would not have had time to talk to the snake and look at the, the, the forbidden fruit or, or somehow it might have worked out another way is what I'm saying you don't have to agree with that <clears throat> but I, I'm just uh, and I, I, I don't actually you know, 100% agree with, uh, agree, agree with myself as very often I don't um, i just throw it out for your, for your reflection now <clears throat> my, my point is quite apart from that aside really, which perhaps we didn't really need but anyway my, my point is that to do nothing is to do evil and even to kill and that is fairly strongly rooted in Bible teaching and it's I think another window into the beauty of the character of the Lord that in his personality and in his life, in his history uh, of human life he never, not only never committed sin but he never omitted to do anything which he should have done and in that, I, I think we see another beautiful insight into the one that we 're here to remember that it 's not just that he kept his nose clean that he had a stronger will he had some steel in his soul that you and i don 't have that somehow steeled him to to uh, not not be naughty kind of thing it wasn't it wasn 't as simple as that it was a case of not omitting to do any act of righteousness so then as I say, we could just stop here and we all just think about that because we are all guilty of this. Silence does so often mean consent. And many people who have observed human life, people who have been involved in struggling against oppressive regimes, people who have suffered from oppressive regimes, pretty well everybody who has uh, walked around Auschwitz or, or what was once known as Auschwitz uh, in silence as most people do has come to this this simple conclusion that this is what happens when good people do nothing and so many people have, have commented on this that it, you know, I, I don't need to, uh, to bore you with them but the point is that this is really so and this is almost the besetting sin I think of our generation where people have retreated behind computer, computer screens Uh, people have gone back into themselves and therefore there is a, a tendency to not lift a finger when we see abuse, when we see injustice, when we see others being abused, when we see possibilities for us to serve and in the split second maybe or few seconds where we consider whether I should do this or or not do that, whether I should uh, I don't know donate to this good cause or whether I should uh, go round and see her or write him a letter or send her a card. You know we come up with all these billion and one reasons well I'm busy, well I'm already involved in this that or the other well yes if I did that yes but and you know the flesh is very adept at those kind of excuses And we have to realize that by doing that and getting away with it, because nobody apart from God, certainly nobody on this earth, maybe notices that we have made those decisions in our little minds, in those few seconds as we read information off a computer screen and wondered, how should I respond to this? Should I respond? Nobody knows. Nobody sees it. And that's why this kind of sin is endemic because you you don't get busted for it and yet it is a doing of evil and even a killing this is very very profound and Jesus obviously felt that himself the fact he says this you can see him i think struggling within himself nobody likes endless conflict with self righteous so-called brethren like like, uh, like the pharisees and the herodians no nobody wants this kind of con- conflict all the time. And he must have been tired of it and thought, "Ah, oh, yeah, you know. Oh, yeah, poor guy's got a withered hand. There's all sorts of people with withered hands. Yeah, okay. I'm, uh, you know, I'm the son of God. I'm trying to be perfect to save all these people. Um, I probably would uh, do everybody a bit of a favour if I finished the course successfully without sinning so I won't uh, go around seeking undue provocation. That, that is how I think I would have thought. But time and again how we would have thought and how we probably would have acted and how we could imagine ourselves acting is not of course how the Lord acted and I, I think that is particularly the case with this whole thing from 22 uh, down to let's say um, verse 30 this whole thing about Beelzebub and they verse 22 the scribes say he's got Beelzebub and by the prince of the demons he's casting out demons Jesus does not react how I would have done you see how I would have responded to that would have been to say guys uh, demons don't actually exist God is all powerful and sure God may concede to your human weakness and letting you sort of have the idea that okay all these things exist but you know God is all powerful and God is my father and so no that there's no um there's no conflict going on here and Beelzebub, listen guys you want to know what what the Bible says about Beelzebub 2 Kings chapter 1 verse 2 and in 2 Kings chapter 1 verse 2 we've got Ahaziah he falls through his lattice in his upper bedroom that was in Samaria, he's ill and he sends messengers and says, go inquire of Beelzebub, Baalzebub, the god of Ekron whether I shall recover of this disease and if you go on reading in 2 Kings chapter 1 Elijah goes to meet those messengers and says why is there not a god in Israel that you go to inquire of Baal Baalzebub, Beelzebub, the god of Ekron and the whole chapter goes on to show that Beelzebub doesn't really exist and if you believe in him you don't really believe in God Beelzebub doesn't exist and uh, if you truly believe in the God of Israel you do not believe in Beelzebub and that's what 2 Kings chapter 1 says period dot com end you are wrong but Jesus doesn't do that he really doesn't do that it's just beautiful it's a beautiful insight into his whole uh, psychology and his whole beautiful character he says Okay, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom's divided against itself, that kingdom can't stand. If twenty-six of Satan rises up against himself and be divided, he cannot stand, but has an end. So he's saying that uh, okay, <clears throat> if uh, you say that I am on Satan's side, or Beelzebub's side, and I'm throwing out demons, well, that means then that. Uh, there's uh, a division within Satan's kind of camp so it's uh, he's not going to stand is he, That that's going to be destructive to Satan's kingdom, why would I want to destroy Satan's kingdom if I'm actually on Satan's side by starting a division within Satan's kingdom he doesn't uh, sort of challenge them straight up, he reasons from the idea that ok, I'll take you where you are, if that's what you believe, fine. Let's just take that as true. Although he doesn't say that. Again, you know, I would tend to say, well, okay, let's just for a moment imagine that what you're saying is true. Do you not see the logical contradictions of X, Y, and Z? But he's not like that. He, he doesn't say that. He doesn't say, look, okay, you're wrong, but let's just imagine you're right for a moment. He doesn't say that. He just talks to them as if they're right. Now, that, I think, is a model of, of how to uh, how to deal with people, to take people from where they are. And, you know, the Lord does exactly that with you and I, that he's taken you and I where we are, where we were in life, and works with us, I think, within the uh, the frames of our understanding, within the frames of our possibilities to comprehend. And verse 27 is also pretty profound. He says, you can't just walk into a strong man's house and, and, and steal his goods. You've got to first tie the strong man up and then you can spoil his house. Then you can take things out of his house. So <clears throat> he's implying, I think, that the the good deeds that he had done <coughs> of curing mentally diseased people or people with what they would call demons, he's... ...describing those healings as the goods that belong to Satan. And he's saying that I'm only doing that because I have first bound the strong man. Now he's speaking before he died. The final uh, killing of the devil was, according to Hebrews 2... ...when Jesus totally overcame sin in his death on the cross but it's as if he's saying now in my life I have bound the strong man and that's why we can help ourselves with his goods and I can, I can do these healings but he hadn't actually killed the strong man that's what I think happened in that sense on the cross so of course this is all metaphor that we're reading uh, but what I'm trying to say is that Jesus felt during the course of his life that he had bound the Satan, the adversary. And the greatest human adversary, as I'm often saying, is not any cosmic being up in the sky. It is our own basic tendency to sin. That is our problem. That is our... Uh, that, that's the real Satan, the real adversary in our lives. And Jesus felt that already during his life, he had bound that strong man and notice how he calls Satan which I take to here be a cipher really for sin for all that is spiritually against God and against spirituality Uh, he does call him even Jesus himself calls him a strong man in this uh, metaphor so the flesh is strong and the Lord recognized the strength of, uh, of human nature very very clearly and the strength of sin Um, Paul also uses that same idea the strength of sin is the law and so Jesus has however bound that strong man in his life and ultimately killed him but that is not how it seems to you and I because we are so human and we are so full of of temptation, of weakness, of giving in, of going to the left when we should go to the right, when we face temptation etc but the fact is that Jesus has made that achievement and because of the whole nature of our relationship with him, that we are in him that his victory becomes ours that therefore, therefore, we should not think, well, I was okay for him, he overcame sin, but I've still got to do that, and it doesn't look like I'm doing too well. The point is that his victory is counted to us. And then this chapter ends with this, uh, in a sense, sad, but in a sense, wonderful incident where his mother and his brethren are outside the house, and they send a a messenger through the crowd to say, hey, Jesus, uh, your mum and your your brothers, they're looking for you and he says who is my mother or my brethren 34 he looked round about on them again you've got the body language of Jesus again the camera is up close he looked round about on them which sat about him and said behold my mother and my brothers now this was radical this is pretty radical for us but in a first century Palestinian Galilean uh, context this was almost blasphemy that your family was all that you were all that you had was your family if you lost your family in war or some sort of persecution, your enemies came and took them all away or they all died in a catastrophe a lot of people would just kill themselves because they had no meaning for themselves in life apart from their place within their family and the fact that Jesus said that and always seems to emphasize this uh, a Barrier or separation between him and his family. You know the way he he addresses his mother as woman. The uh, the incident in Cana of Galilee when he says, "You know, woman, my time has not yet come." And then, of course, when he dies on the cross, "Woman, behold your son." And he he nods as he says that towards John, as if you know in that tragic uh, tragic uh, possibility for misunderstanding when he says woman behold your son she would have maybe thought he's saying mum look at me here and then his maybe motioning with the eyes or possibly slightly moving his head bearing in mind the crucified position he would have been motioning to her maybe with raised eyebrows that John is now your son don't look at me look at him as your son and uh, it is all very tragic in a sense but the wonderful thing is that he really counts us as his family and that those people who are sitting around him in the house listening to him teaching I mean, Mary would have immediately said, oh, Jesus, come on, they're, these people are not serious. They're, yeah, they're sort of fascinated by what you're saying, but uh, they're just there for the loaves and fishes and see if there's any more miracles today. They're just uh, they're passing level interest, and, you know, she was probably right in many cases. But he looks around on those people with at least some interest and says, you're my family, the family for which I've rejected my natural family. And that's in our homes, in our house churches, in our private homes, in our encounters with Jesus in our houses, in our homes, we likewise, who sometimes one feels we're so weak that we have little more than a passing interest in him, and we're so caught up with so many other things, but he considers us to be his family, all that he has, and he positions himself in his own self-understanding, within the frames of of reference of family and that family is